reading verses 14 to 17 as we continue to work our way through Hebrews. Hebrews 12, verses 14 to 17. It's on page 1193 if you're using a pew Bible. Let me just read this text, Hebrews chapter 12, and this morning we're studying verses 14 to 17. It says in verse 14, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. We'll have some good news this morning. The good news is we are in the final leg of the book of Hebrews. So we started this uh, series uh, last September, so it's been about 11 months now. Just been kind of slowly working our way through the book. And with the beginning of chapter 12, verse 14, we transition into the last major literary segment of this book. And, uh, and I thought, since we're here at the end, it might be helpful just to quickly um, remind us all of, of where we've been in this book, to kind of re-summarize Hebrews. Sometimes when you spend a long time in one biblical book the way we've done, it's easy to kind of lose sight of the whole thing. But we're so close to it, we've been going through it so slowly, we sort of miss the big picture. So just to remind ourselves, what is the book of Hebrews about? And fundamentally, Hebrews is a book written to Christians who are struggling in their faith, facing pressure, persecution, suffering, temptation. And these Christians are being tempted to sort of give up on their faith and turn back from God and wander away. So the writer of Hebrews knows this about this certain group of Christians. So he writes this letter to them to try to inspire them not to give up, not to turn back, but to keep pressing on in their faith. And what he specifically does is he holds up before them Jesus as, as their goal and their model and their ultimate desire. And so he lifts Jesus up and he says, hey, all you guys, let's keep pressing forward in our faith. That, that's the basic gist of the entire book of Hebrews. And, and he does that through different pictures and arguments and uh, texts. So the, the way the book breaks down, it has five major segments to it. And let me just quickly rattle those off for you and just to remind you where we've been. Chapters 1 and 2 is segment 1. And there we see Jesus as the exalted divine Son of God who's higher than the angels. All right, The book of Hebrews starts off with a, an explosive theological bang. It, as lifting up Jesus as high as he could possibly be lifted as the divine Son of God, higher than the angels. And so the idea is, follow him, because there's no one higher than Jesus. And then the second segment is chapter 3. And it runs all the way to the end of chapter 5, verse 10. That's the second major chunk. And the emphasis there is Jesus as the faithful high priest. So it's all about being faithful and Jesus' faithfulness. And it's contrasted, if you remember, in chapters uh, 3 and 4, with unfaithful Israel in the Old Testament. They wanted to turn back and go to Egypt. But the call is to be like Jesus and keep pressing forward faithfully. The third major segment starts at chapter 5, verse 11. And this is the biggest chunk in Hebrews. It runs all the way through the end of chapter 10. 
And it's all about the superiority of Jesus' high priestly work for us compared to the Old Testament. You know, the Old Testament priests and sacrifices, they couldn't really take away sin. But Jesus, the great high priest, who sacrificed himself once for all, can truly cleanse us of our sins. So there's a huge contrast. So again, the idea is follow Jesus because he's the great high priest. And then in the fourth segment is what we just finished. It goes from chapter 11 all the way through chapter 12, verse 13. And, and that's the hall of faith. Do you remember that? Where all these Old Testament saints are listed. And the emphasis there is be faithful just as these saints were faithful. And, and so through different means and different segments, the message is the same. It's keep pressing on in your faith by following Jesus. And then we come finally to this last segment, which starts in chapter 12, verse 14, and runs to the end of the book, the last segment. And it doesn't really have a major theme. It's kind of different from the others. And there's a reason for that. It's kind of like the catch-all at the end of the book that includes all the final instructions that the guy wanted to say. Um, In fact, there's a biblical studies academic term for this. Theologians and biblical studies people call this uh, perenesis, right? P-A-R-E-N-E-S-I-S. How's that? So throw that around this week. Really, you know, impress your friends. Try to, you know, work that into a conversation. It's, uh, it's perenesis, and it just means exhortation. And what you see is a lot of times in New Testament letters, the, the author will make an argument and talk about, you know, uh, Old Testament texts and make theological arguments. Then at the end of the letter, there's this catch-all section, which just has a lot of almost like um, rapid-fire instructions. It's kind of like when your mom sends you to camp or your parents drop you off at college, and it's finally time to say goodbye, and they're kissing you and saying goodbye, and then they have to give you all these instructions right at the end. Now remember, remember to call me, and, and remember that Visa card is just for an emergency, but if you need it, you can use it, but don't have to use it. And, oh yeah, and remember I put your underwear, I packed it and put it in the drawer. Oh yeah, and, and also remember, take your medicine, take your vitamins. Okay, oh remember, you know, it's like, just go, Mom. <laughs> I got it. And, and that's how the end of a lot of New Testament letters are. It's a lot of rapid-fire instructions. So, so that's what we're entering into with chapter 12, verse 14. It's only two chapters, but, but there's a lot of quick things packed into it. Because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, we should follow him, and here's a, a final packet of instructions for us. So it's, it's, it's going to be very interesting these next couple chapters. I think in many ways very practical, because it's a lot of practical instructions in Christian living. Uh, it kind of gets really nitty-gritty. And um, it starts off right here in chapter 12, verse 14. The parenesis begins. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Let's just dive right in with this, these little commands, these exhortations, this parenesis at the end of the book. And, and it starts off, make every effort to live in peace with all men and be holy. Let's just start with that verb, make every effort. That's a very strong verb. So he begins this whole parenesis section with a very strong command to make every effort. Now, now really, there's a Greek word there. It's one word. It's dioko, which means to pursue or to chase. Sometimes it can, be, means, it can mean to persecute. So, so it's a very active, aggressive, not sitting back on your couch kind of word, but out there pursuing so, so he's like, you've got to pursue peace and holiness. 
You know, when I think of that word, I, I just I had different images in my mind. I thought of like bloodhounds that, that have the scent of a fugitive, and they're tracking him down. They're pursuing him, hunting the fugitive down. He's running for it, and the dog's, you know, right on his tail, pushing and chasing. Or I thought about like a linebacker who sees the ball carrier, and he's closing the distance rapidly to make the tackle. You know, he's in pursuit of his prey. Uh, or, or I thought about, you know, like two moms on a sidewalk or kind of got lost in conversation, and one of them looks around for her toddler and realizes he's wandered out into the street. She pursues. <laughs> this is not a passive thing. She is gone, and she's running and yelling. You know, so this is a very strong, vibrant, active word. We must pursue, or it's translated here, make every effort. And we're to pursue two things. And this is where I think it kind of gets interesting. Peace with all men and holiness. Or as it says here, to be holy. But in Greek, it's, I think, a little more elegant. It's just pursue peace and holiness. Pursue these two things. Now, I find that interesting because I think those are not the kinds of things that our culture tells us to pursue. That everyone's pursuing something. We're all after something in life. We all have, you know, whether it's a job or a relationship or uh, sports or fitness or a wardrobe or a boat or whatever it is. You know, we all get certain things in our sights that we want and we pursue those things. And we begin to marshal our finances and our time and our energies. And, and we build our lives to get those things that we want, we pursue. And so the world is pursuing all kinds of things. But I don't think that peace and holiness are at the top of the list for what the world is pursuing. And that's something we come to understand as Christians. That if we're really going to pursue Jesus, then we're going to be going, in many ways, the opposite direction of everyone around us. To, to live as a Christian faithfully and to pursue Christ, it's like going up the down escalator filled with people. And, and it feels like that as a Christian sometimes. Like, you know, everyone's like, what? You know, if you try to go up the down escalator, you're like, wait, hey, what gives? Where are you going? Why are you doing this? It's like, I got to go. I, you got to move. I need to follow Christ. We're going the opposite direction from the way the whole world is going. Let's just break down these two objects of pursuit. The first is peace. Christians are called to live in peace with other people. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. The Apostle Paul said, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. Obviously, it takes two to make peace, but as far as it, it's, it's up to you, try your hardest to live at peace with everybody. Uh, Paul also says in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And so as Christians, we're called to be peacemakers, especially in the church. You know, Jesus has made peace with us in God through his death on the cross. And as those who follow Christ, we're now a family. And, and so we should really model peace as a church together. The church should be an island of peace um, in a world that is full of conflict. You know, if there's one thing we can say about this world, it's that conflict and division have saturated the world at every level. It's just everywhere in our experience. There are tensions in our families. Kids at school get into fights, and they're always, they, they always have enemies. You know, I get asked my kids at any time, who are your friends at school? They'll tell me. Then I'll say, who are your enemies? They always have enemies. It's just like you have to have an enemy. You know, it's just part of the way human beings work. We have angry fists and horns on our highways. 
I'm ashamed to say I contribute to that at different times. We have conflict in the workplace as people cajole and connive and make power plays to try to get positions and gain favor with those above them. Countries are at war with each other. I mean, just put human beings together. From Cain and Abel in the original story outside of the garden on, human beings have been in conflict. And God's plan is that the church should be an island of peace in a raging world sea of conflict. That the church should be a place that when we come together, there is an almost otherworldly unity and harmony to us. That the Holy Spirit should give us a kind of peace and unity that the world talks about all the time, but never seems to be able to achieve. That's the ideal. That's what the church should be. But as we know, it's not always how it is. Even in the church, sometimes, rather than pursuing Jesus, we can get so wrapped up in pursuing our own agendas, our own egos. We can get up, caught up in pursuing our cliques and our styles and our preferences. So that sometimes, even in the church, it's a place of division because people have taken their eyes off the Lord, taken their eyes off Jesus and putting them on man and men's rules and men's preferences and power struggles. And, and so I, I think there's a call here upon us as Christians, starting with the house of God, to be a house of peace where when people come in, they can know Jesus is real because of the way that we love each other. You know, by this all men will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. And so we need to be, we need to practice peace. And so there's a really, I think this is a command here for Christians. Pursue peace starting in the church, starting with each other. So let me just do a quick time out there. And... Uh, do a parenesis with all of you and with myself. Is there someone in the church or in your life with whom you need to seek peace as far as it depends upon you? Obviously, again, it takes two to make it work, but is there some step that God is calling you to take to make peace with somebody? You, you said, yeah, I did that. I sent her an email. And she didn't email me back, so, you know. Okay, that's good. Email's good. You may actually have to talk to her I know we don't do that as much nowadays. We like to solve things by email. But you may actually have to sit down with the person and have a face-to-face conversation. And it may actually take more than one conversation. Sometimes to, to really come together and understand each other, or at least understand where you agree to disagree, it takes conversations. It takes time, patience, long-suffering. It takes effort. It's a pursuit. It's up the down escalator. And it, it is tiring and taxing. Look at the other thing we're supposed to pursue. And this is even more out there, culturally speaking. We should pursue peace and holiness. Or as it's translated here, to be holy. Pursuing holiness. I mean, you want to talk about an idea that I think almost is almost like speaking another language if you say that to the average person on the street. You start talking about holiness. People, we just don't talk about holiness. The only time we say the word holy is kind of mocking. Someone's a holy roller, holier than thou. But this is a common biblical concept that we be a holy people. We need to have holiness in our attitudes toward things. You know, that, that idea that I'm going to glorify and, and delight in God no matter what circumstances befall me. I want to glorify God with my attitudes. I'm going to glorify Him with the thoughts that go through my head that no one sees but He sees. I want to glorify God with what comes out of my mouth that my words would be holy, 
that there wouldn't be lying and slander and gossip and swearing and bitterness, but that my, my mouth would be holy and glorify God, that my actions would glorify God. You know, holiness is just, like I said, a radically different concept than what the world is used to. It, it's not what uh, people are pursuing today. Um, you talk about, uh, you know, holiness. People don't even know what you're talking about. You start talking about success. Oh, yeah, well, I know about success. People like success. Or, or bring up the idea of balance. You hear people talk about this all the time. You know, I'm trying to get some balance in my life. I think, I think my life is out of balance. I, I need to balance myself. And there's all this talk about balance. I don't know where that came from. It's kind of, I think it's more of an Eastern concept of finding yin and yang balance. But holiness, what's holiness? You know, personal fulfillment, self-expression, self-actualization, all of these kinds of concepts. But where is the holiness and yet God is holy, and He demands holiness from us as His people. Are we seeking and pursuing holiness along with peace? All right, so let's do another uh, timeout, check ourselves. Ask yourself this question, I'll ask myself. If you were to analyze your, your character and to pick out the top one, two, three areas of your life where you tend to struggle with holiness, where you tend to be prone to sin. In the wall of your life, these are the weak spots where, where temptation seems to get over the wall pretty easily. And if you were to look at your life, you know, what would they be? Uh, maybe it would be anger or gossip or lying or lust or greed or ego or bitterness. I mean, whatever. I mean, we all probably know ourselves and we can think about our own lives. Where are those weak spots in my life? What if you were to pick one of those areas and say, for the month of August, I'm going to pursue holiness. What if instead of just saying, oh, that's, that's how I am. You know, my dad was that way too. I really can't help it. It's just you know, it's the way it is. It's how it is in my family. What if we weren't satisfied with that? And we said, you know, I'm going to pursue holiness. Yeah, I know. I have a long line of this in my family. But I'm going to stop it. And I'm going to pursue holiness. And so for this month, I'm going to target this area of my life with prayer, just asking for God's power to grow in holiness. In fact, I'm even going to tell like two of my friends who I really trust to pray for me in this area as well and say, pray for me through August. I might even fast. I might even uh, email the, you know, get a book on the, the topic that I'm trying to wrestle with. Maybe I'll email the pastors and say, you know, Pastor, I have a friend who struggles with this and, and we'll be happy to email you something for your friend. Uh, and just target it or memorize scriptures or read certain texts of the Bible that I'd love to help you out with finding that would sort of target a certain area. What if we were serious about pursuing holiness? That we were intentional and aggressive about it the way that we pursue so many other things. I wonder if God might work in our lives if we really sought His help and His power. Or are we so resigned that well, that's just how I am. That's how we'll always be. Or is God real? And can God work if we call upon Him and upon His Holy Spirit? We need to pursue holiness because look at the stern warning at the end of verse 14. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's a stern warning. I find that disconcerting and also exciting simultaneously. Without holiness... No one will see the Lord. You think the idea of holiness is lost on our culture. 
the idea that holiness is the prerequisite for seeing the Lord is really lost in our culture. But Jesus said it. He said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they what? They shall see God. And so without holiness, you can't see the Lord. And again, I think this is very different from the conventional wisdom today. The conventional wisdom you hear today is, is as long as you're not an axe murderer or a suicide bomber, you're probably going to see God because, you know, you're nice, you're decent. Aren't we all nice and decent? And everyone's going to see God and we're all going to a better place. And, you know, as long as you're not really, really, really bad, then we're all okay. And you get this idea in the culture. Um, this may be kind of a touchy subject, but I, I hear this in funerals a lot as a pastor doing funerals, that whether I'm doing a funeral for someone who really did know the Lord and trusted Christ or whether it's someone that I don't really know. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. I don't know who they are. It doesn't matter who it is. When you get to a funeral, people stand up and they say, oh, we know they were a great person. We know they were a decent person. We know they're in a better place. We know they're happy and with God. And I just, you know, sometimes I have to bite my tongue and be like, how do you know that? You know, without holiness, no one can see the Lord. It doesn't say that God is nice, nice, nice. It's that he's holy, holy, holy. It takes more than nice. It takes holiness. So how do we become holy? How can we see God? How do we know that we will be with God? And, and this is, of course, where Jesus comes in because Jesus is our holiness. We, holiness is not something you can develop on your own. There's no self-help book that can give it to you. Um, uh, you know, like, like they say, you can't get there from here. You can't get the holiness from sin. It takes God's gift coming down from heaven, not man's effort going up from earth. In fact, look, put a finger here in Hebrews 12, just really quick. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's Jesus. Both the one who makes men holy, Jesus, and those who are made holy, us, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. We are made holy by God. Holiness is not something we achieve through any program. It's, it's God's work in our life. Or I was thinking another way we could look at it, just kind of wrapping up, going back to Hebrews 12:14. another way to wrap up Hebrews 12:14 is instead of saying pursue peace and holiness, you could kind of summarize that verse just by saying pursue Jesus. Because if I have Jesus, I have peace with God and I have the resources in Him to live at peace with others because of His life in me. And if I pursue Jesus and I have Jesus, then I have holiness because He is my holiness. And His Holy Spirit dwells in me to help me live according to His ways. It's, it's God's power from above working down and in, in through me and in my life. And so pursue Jesus. He's the object of our pursuit. If you lay hold of Christ, you have all of these things. You don't have to work up some you know, kind of fake regimen. It's all in Christ. If you have Jesus, you have everything that you need. And that leads us then to the the next warning, which is in verse 15, back in Hebrews 12. And, and here we have another command in the Perinesis, and it sort of fits with the one going before it. But whereas verse 14 is a command sort of looking forward to pursue peace and holiness, or in other words, I would say pursue Jesus, 
there is also the negative command to watch out, verse 15, so that you don't go back the other direction. So there's a positive and then sort of a negative warning that goes along with it. Look at verse 15 where it says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God, that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. We need to see to it and, and watch out. That, um, that Greek verb there for see to it, really, it literally means to watch over, to look over someone. It's kind of a, you know, it's sort of keeping tabs on each other. And notice it's on each other. See to it so that no one misses the grace of God. So the idea here isn't just watching over myself, but it's all of us together in a church pursuing peace and holiness, pursuing Jesus, while at the same time keeping watch over each other. That part of our responsibility as Christians is to keep, to keep eyes on each other. You know, my family uh, just went to Pennsylvania last week on vacation. We did the whole Dutch country thing, the Amish country. We'd we never done that. It was pretty fun. Um, we went to Hershey Park. It's a great roller coasters there. And, man, I can do roller coasters all day when I'm a kid. When I do them now, and I, I get a headache, and I'm sick. I don't know what happened. I want to do them, but it's like, oh, my head. Um, so, anyway, it, we stayed late at the park, and we finally left around 1030, which is about way past our kids' bedtime. And we were... You know, it's dark. It's pitch black. There's tons of people. We're all trying to get out this exit. And it was this, this kind of thing where you're trying to head to the exit, but at the same time looking back to make sure that no one got lost in the crowd because they're all tired and they're, you know, staggering around and they're, they're like strung out on cotton candy and stuff. And uh, so, so you're constantly like, come on, kids, come on, come on. You know, and you're looking around and let's go, let's go. Oh, where'd you go? Where'd you, hey, come back here. And, and I think that's kind of the tension in these verses. Pursue holiness. Let's all keep pushing forward. But as, as, a, as a church, we have to keep making sure that one of us didn't wander off. You know, that, that one of us didn't get lost and confused and in our tiredness and in our you know, apathy sort of just straggle and sit down on a curb and get lost while the rest of the body moves forward. This is a very communal passage. I think you know, my tendency and our tendency as Americans is to read this very individualistically that I need to just go ahead myself in my personal private Christian life and, and, uh, and I need to watch myself. No, no. It's let's all watch each other. Not like a cult. You know, not like controlling and manipulating and keeping tabs, but like a family. You know, a family watches over each other. We keep tabs on each other. We call each other up and reach out to each other. That's the idea here. That's why it's so important to be a committed member of a local church. Because as Christians, we, we, we keep in touch with each other in a local church. You know, sometimes it, it frustrates me, but sometimes I hear people say, well, I don't need to be in any one local church. I can go to all different churches. You know, each week I go to a different church. Sometimes I watch church on TV. Because, you know, I, as a Christian, I'm part of Christ's body everywhere. It's true, but how do you live out being Christ's body everywhere? You know, to, to use that corny bumper sticker, you have to think globally, but you have to act locally. And if you're not part of a local group of Christians, I would argue it's impossible for you to obey this verse. Because who are you watching out for? All Christians everywhere? I mean, how do you do that? I have a hard enough time just watching out for my, my own family and you, and let alone all Christians everywhere. And, and how do all Christians everywhere watch out for you? So, yeah, we are part of Christ's universal body, but the way you experience that universal body isn't by 
being with it, because it's all over the world, you have to gather with local assemblies of Christians and churches. That's why church membership is just so important. There are so many commands in the Bible that you can't obey unless you're in a church. It just assumes that Christians gather in local bodies and local fellowships. So we watch out for each other. We're moving ahead with Christ. We're making sure no one wanders away. So it says back in verse 15, see to it. And then we've got three things. Number one, that no one misses the grace of God. Number two, no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Number three, that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. I think, having, having studied this, my opinion is that all of those three things are actually the same thing, just expressed in different language. That, that he's really saying one thing, he's just using different images to describe it. And I think the one thing that he's basically saying is, don't wander away from the Lord. Don't turn your back on the Lord. Don't give up and, and say, ah, forget it, I can't, and just wander off into the world. Keep pressing forward. That's what I think all those things mean. L- l- let me show you what I mean. Let's take the first two. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. What does that mean? See to it that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. What, what is that talking about? Well, I think those two commands are an allusion back, follow me here, to a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 29. All right, so put a bookmark here. I've got to show you this. It's really interesting. Deuteronomy chapter 29. It's on page 200 in the Pew Bible. And there's a verse or two there in Deuteronomy that I think is, is sort of the source verse that Hebrews 12 is referencing and alluding back to. Now, Deuteronomy 29, we're back now 1,400 years prior to the book of Hebrews. We're back at the time of Moses with the Israelites about to enter the promised land. And he gives them a stern warning. And his stern warning is, don't wander away from God. Don't worship false idols. Don't turn away. So he says in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 16, You yourselves know how we lived in Egypt and how we passed through the countries on the way here. You saw among them their detestable images and idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold. So he's warning them against idolatry. You guys know, you know, the way of the world around us is idolatry. That's the way the whole world is going. But we are not worshiping idols. We're worshiping the living God. So he says, verse 18, Make sure... Now, you can't see this in English. It's kind of frustrating. But in the Greek version of the Old Testament and in the Greek New Testament, it's the same exact phrase. It's metis, lest someone. Lest someone. And it says, make sure, lest someone. And make sure there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you, who's today, whose heart turns, there we go, away from the Lord our God and go to worship the gods of those nations. Then here's the second one. Make sure it's the same construction. Metis. There is no root among you that produces such a bitter poison. There's the poison root. So I think what's happening is the author of Hebrews, going back to chapter 12, is just pulling this imagery from Deuteronomy 29 and saying just as Israel was warned not to turn back from God and worship idols, we have to be careful not to turn our backs on God and and start worshiping the things of the world around us and following after the things of the world so that we turn them back on Christ. That seems to be the imagery there, I think. So we have to watch out for each other. You know, if you don't see a brother or sister in church that you know for three or four Sundays, 
just call them up. I know that's not totally New England to just kind of call people. <laughs> but we've got to do it. We've got to call people and be like, hey, I haven't seen you. Where have you been? Oh, I kind of got into an argument with someone in church, and I'm, I'm mad. I don't want to go. I'm like, well, you need to go. Come on, I'll help you. I'll, I'll sit down and work it out. What happened? You know, we have to watch over each other and make sure. Hey, where have you been? I haven't seen you for a couple of months. Oh, we've been skiing this winter every Sunday. You know, going up to our ski chalet, and it's like every Sunday, all winter. <laughs> well, how are your kids growing in the Lord? You know, what what are you doing to raise your kids up in the Lord while you're skiing all winter? It's like, you know, where are our priorities? What are we worshiping? What cultural values are we assuming that are important? What about following the Lord? I think it's just so easy. There's so many things that we could turn our backs on the Lord for and go after. And so as a body, we need to keep our hands on each other and encourage each other. And of course, the ultimate example for that is back in Hebrews 12, verse 16, with Esau. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau. Now that word for sexually immoral can mean sexual immorality. It can also mean more generally unfaithfulness. There's some cases where it means unfaithfulness. It's probably more the context here. Um, so, so don't be like Esau who was unfaithful and godless, or you could translate that secular or worldly. Esau was secular, worldly, he was ungodly, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Now do you know the story of Esau? Do you, you guys familiar with Esau? He was the grandson of Abraham. So Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had twins. Esau was the oldest. Jacob was the next one. So as the oldest son, uh, Esau had the rights of the oldest son. He was going to be the firstborn. He was going to receive the inheritance. All the promises of Abraham were supposed to come to Esau. You know, we think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It should have been Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. But Esau sold himself out. And for what? For a meal. Go back to Genesis. Let's just read that story real quick. Like, and Then I'll close. Genesis 25. First book of the Bible, Genesis 25, verse 24. Let's read about how Esau sold himself out, stopped pursuing the promise of God, and turned his back. Genesis chapter 25, verse 24. This is the birth of these two kids. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up. Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, uh, no, uh, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So you're sort of your typical biblical dysfunctional family uh, with all kinds of favoritism and problems. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why his name is also called Edom, which means red. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him 
selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, and they got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. And here's the idea. Christians, what a birthright we have in Christ. What an amazing inheritance awaits us in Jesus. Let's not turn our backs on Christ for a bowl of soup or whatever it is the world would give us. I mean, it's lentil soup. That doesn't even sound very good. I know, it's like... And some bread. And he sold his birthright for that. Just some red lentil soup. He just was like, okay, I'll take it. You know, we don't want to be like that. We don't want to turn our back on Christ for anything the world has to offer. Jacob, or Esau sold out. And his price, his sale price, was a bowl of soup. Judas sold out. His price was 30 pieces of silver. What's your price? Do you have a price at which you would sell out the Lord? Maybe it is like food and drink, you know? It's like you know, food and drink and alcohol or whatever. It's like, yeah, whatever, I'll, I'll take that. That's what I'm interested in. Maybe it's um, a career or money. Or maybe it's a spouse. You're like, I'm so desirous to be married, I, w- I would sell out Christ and my commitments to Him just to have that. Maybe, maybe I'd be willing to sell out myself just so that people would like me or that I'd be popular or be successful. You know, what's your sales price? And here's the thing. Once you set that price, you can be sure that Satan will easily match it. He will be happy to buy you out. Brothers and sisters, we need to be the opposite kind of people. Rather than selling Christ out for the paltry treasures of this world, we need to be the opposite kind of people who say, I am willing to pay anything in this world to gain Jesus. That there is nothing in this world that's more valuable than knowing Christ and laying hold of Him. Like Paul said in Philippians, whatever it was to my profit, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more? I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. Everything is a loss and a write-off compared to to knowing Jesus and having Him as my Savior, the inheritance and the promise that is in Christ. If I have the whole world, all of its treasures and all of its pleasures and all of its success, it would be a bargain. It would be a steal to give all of that so that I might have Christ. It would be worth it. I would be the luckiest shopper there ever was to be able to pay the world in order to receive the Lord and the salvation and the promise that's in Him. Or as Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, I pray that you would enable us now to treasure you, that you would take the blinders off our eyes and help us to see that you are, you are greater and more valuable than anything this world has to offer, that, Lord, it is even worth giving up our very lives to lay hold of you. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would just show us the infinite value of your glory and of your name and of your person, that knowing you is worth more than all the world. Lord, just convince us of these great truths. Help us to stop believing the, the, just the faulty sales pitch this world has given us, the false advertising we've received. And Lord, I pray that, that you would help us to pursue you. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be holy that if there's areas of our lives where we need to pursue greater holiness, that we might do that by your power. If there's peace uh, that needs to happen between us and others, Lord, I pray you would just help facilitate that peace, God, so we might be at peace as far as it depends upon us with other Christians. And God, I pray if there's anyone here who doesn't yet know you, Lord, that they might experience you, Christ, speaking to their hearts. Lord, I pray that you would call men and women to yourself. And I pray that South Shore Baptist Church might be a holy church, that it might be a unified, peaceful church, that when people walk in here, Lord, that they would experience the living presence of Jesus in our lives and the way we treat each other. And I ask this in Christ's name. sing together, I have decided to follow Jesus. Though none go with me, I still will follow. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning service. Our prayer team is over here in the alcove. They'd love to pray with you confidentially if you'd like prayer. And uh, I'll be in the foyer to greet you as you depart.
And Bob, would you mind just closing the service in prayer? Thanks, brother. Oh, dear Lord, help us to uh, to see beyond the world and everything that, that lures us and draws us, Lord, and see that there's only one thing, thing that we can really hold on to, and that is eternity, Lord. And, and let us reach hold of that blessing that you have made available and free to us. We ask for the strength. In Jesus' name, amen.